Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today. This week's episode features Sarah Kugelman. She is the founder of Skin Iceland. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Wendy Zomner. She's the founding partner of Urban Decay. Hope you enjoy the episodes. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am pleased to be sitting with Sarah Kugelman. She is the founder of Skin Iceland. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. So happy to be here. It's so great to have you here. I met you many, many years ago. So it's cool that we have this as a little reunion. Yes. Very exciting. And um, I'm going to start today with my favorite question because I love minutia. How are you going to spend your day today? Um, well, I was just talking about that because I have an extremely busy day work-wise. I have like back-to-back meetings. And I also have a 12-year-old daughter that just had back surgery. So I am coordinating uh, physical therapy, tutor schedule, and dinner for her. So it's it's going to be a real juggling type of a day, which is pretty typical of the way it goes as an entrepreneur, uh, single mother. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah, it is. How do you... Um how do you like program those days when like you have a, a kid who needs you, right? And you have a business that needs you. Do you have a, a tricker system? I try to um, do what I can remotely sometimes. Um, and it, the amazing thing about technology is I can do phone meetings um, and work from anywhere. So sometimes I will do um, a conference call from uh, the sidewalk outside my daughter's school, or I will, you know, while she's in physical therapy, I'll be typing, you know, emails. Um, So I literally squeeze work in where I can. And typically what I'll do is kind of squeeze things in if I have a crazy day like that and I'm juggling. But then after I put her to bed, then I'll work from like 10 p.m. until like 1 or 2 in the morning. Because the work doesn't stop. It does not. It does not. And having a global business, like there's always somebody up somewhere. So I pretty much can work all the time. Do you have a lot of um, parents on your team? Um, I I really don't. I'm one of the only parents on my team. We have a lot of um, parents on this team. And the the funniness about it is like there's always something, right? So like... A household just had the flu. I mean, actually, two households just had the flu. You know, one needed this, one needed that. And, like, we all can commiserate with each other because as parents, like, it's, you know, it's never, like, the day that the way it should be planned, right? There's always something. Right, exactly. So, in a way, it's good having your own business because you're a little more flexible. But in a way, it just adds more to your plate. So, I don't know. You're just, you feel like you're always juggling and sort of never doing anything 100%, sadly. Well, there is no perfection, I think. That's my point of view anyway. Agreed. It shouldn't even be a word in our language because it doesn't exist. So um, we just do our best. I think, too, that's very much a part of, unfortunately, being a woman. I think we self-bully a lot and are always talking about how we aren't, you know, good at this or perfect at that or could be doing this better. I, I just feel like that's a real female thing. Yes. Well, we are superheroes, um, I do believe. I <laughs> This is my philosophy. I have no science to back it up, but that, like, we really are, like, a superwoman. Like, we have these powers, right? And they, yeah. like, radiate from our fingertips and our head and our toes, and um, we are capable of so much. 
So therefore, then we all put harder expectations on ourselves. But yeah. we are superpowers. Yeah, I agree. We have like this incredible ability to multitask. Like we're able to focus on a lot of things at the same time and do a lot of things concurrently, which I think is really different from men because I don't think they have that specific talent. So let's talk about your your career history because it's so fun rereading my notes from our call um, because you've done so many amazing things and I didn't know where to start. But I, I feel like what I want to start with is something you said, which is so funny, that um, really amazing things happen for you at dinner parties. It's true. I mean, you never know like when you're going to be in the right place at the right time and when you're not even thinking about business, how you make connections and you find people that help you um, sort of maybe get to the next step or realize something that you've been thinking about or envisioning. And I'm a huge believer in, um, you know, people call it different things, but creative visualization or putting the energy out there or, you know, the power of now, but but seeing what you want and then making it happen through connections. So um, there's two specific dinner parties that you told me about. Um, one of them was many years ago, when you were at Banana Republic. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so let's go back in time to Banana Republic. Okay. So I was like a a marketing director, merchandising director at at Banana Republic. I was running the fragrance business, and I had written a business plan for what later became Gloss.com, but um, it was sitting in a drawer, and at the time I was in San Francisco, and Silicon Valley was exploding, and I went to a dinner party, and I was sitting next to a friend of mine who was a banker at Credit Suisse First Boston, and he literally overheard me talking to somebody on my left about this business plan for a beauty website, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he's, he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, you know, my my business. And he said, what business? And I said, you know, this beauty internet site. And he said, "I you never told me about that. So then we started talking about it, and he said, is anybody doing that? And I said, no. And he said, all right, I'm going to call a couple of my investors tomorrow. And then I'm going to call you back and tell you whether I think it's a good idea. And he called me like at noon the next day on a Saturday. And he he was, he was said, I need you to call in sick to work. I'm taking you to Silicon Valley to meet with investors. And that was sort of the beginning of my Gloss.com story. So what was Gloss.com? So um, in 1999, I launched a beauty internet site, which was the first beauty internet site. And it was um, a play, a destination place for buying beauty as well as content for beauty. So it was a magazine and a store. And we sold it to Estee Lauder one year later. So this is insane, right? This whole um, dot-com boom that was happening around Y2K time period, um, really, that might have been the only place that touched beauty because it was about so many other things, right? It was like the first time we had those food delivery startups, right? There were like right. so many things that were like incubated that we know of now as normal. Um, but I can't think of other ways where beauty was part of this moment. Um, and I remember like this company, right? I didn't obviously know you, yeah. but um, this was this was so revolutionary, like right? It kind of feels silly to say like it, shopping for beauty online right. is revolutionary. And now, now it's so normal and mainstream. Like you couldn't imagine how then nobody was thinking about that. It was totally out of the box. Like I, I literally. It was just such a crazy experience. I mean, I came to New York to find brands that would sell to us. People looked at me like I had three heads, like who in Prestige was going to sell on the internet that would destroy mm-hmm. any brand. Um, and But, you know, we saw this huge revolution. I saw this huge revolution coming, and I said, you know, you got to get on the train. The train's leaving the station. And some people got on, and other people didn't get it yet. 
So um, can we go back in time? I want to know about, like, what was the first brand that agreed to sell on Gloss.com? Um, it was Elizabeth Arden. And um, so we came to New York, and, and I had two partners, and the three of us stayed in a studio apartment. We were, like, sleeping on the floor. And we were all employed by our um, the jobs that we had at the time. Um, but the investors um, had basically earmarked $5 million, but they said, we, we're not going to give you the money unless you actually have some brands that sign on. So we, like, came to New York, our, you know— we called in to our jobs and said we were taking vacation time, and our first meeting was with Elizabeth Arden. It was with Joe Spellman. And we spent, like, two days rehearsing, like, you know, what are we going to say? And if he asks us this question, how are we going to respond? And, you know, how's the whole meeting going to go? And so we go in. We're super nervous, and we're like, what if anybody sees us and calls our boss back home and tells us that we're, you know, moonlighting? So we go in, and I make this whole presentation to him. I said, you know, we're, we, we have this company— um, we're launching this website. It's going to be great. There's going to be all these brands. It's going to be like, you know, you see this amazing product. You click on it. You buy it. And he he's sitting, doesn't say anything, quiet through the whole conversation. And then I stop, and I look at him, and um, I said, you know, like, so we're here because we want to know if you'll sell to us. And he said, yes. And I was like, yes? And it was like the only answer we'd not prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Yes. Oh, okay. So my partners and I, um, Deanna Kangas was one of my partners. So we looked at each other and we we're like, okay, bye. And we left and we called the investors and we're like, okay, we have Elizabeth Arden. And, you know, they came with a bunch of other brands. And so that was pretty much a, a turning point for us. And ironically, when we sold the business to Estee Lauder, one of the first people that I I talked to there or connected with was Joe Spellman because then he was at Estee Lauder. So um, it was it was quite an extraordinary full circle moment. So um, were you, did you have relationships in beauty before that Elizabeth Arden meeting? I did, only because I'd been working. I'd worked for L'Oreal for a couple of years. I'd worked for Bath and Body Works, and then I was at Banana Republic. So I did, between Deanna and I, we had quite a few contacts in the industry. And so we called all the people that we knew and then had them also network for us. And that was how we got in to see a whole bunch of people. And then one year later, you were acquired. One year later. Were you expecting that? Not at all. It was a complete surprise. And in fact, I was the one that got the call from Water. And um, they called me on my cell phone. And I got a call from a, a banker. And he said, um, I'm calling from Estee Lauder. And I'd, I'd like to talk to you. And I got really concerned because we had done a promotion with Bobby Brown. And um, we, we basically did a limited edition lip gloss that was going to be sold on the red carpet. And we checked every box and said before we ran this program, did you tell corporate is this approved? Because we know it was like a very tricky time because Lauder didn't want to align with any websites because they knew once they did, then it would everybody would think they were buying them or, or investing them. So we said, are you sure Lauder knows that you're doing this program with it? Yes, yes, yes. Everybody knows. Well, it turned out they didn't. And we, you know, everybody got in a lot of trouble. And I thought they were calling to, to like, bring legal action against us. So I didn't call them back. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> so I finally told my partners, and they were like, you better call them back. And so it took me three days to return the phone call. And when I finally called them back, they said, uh, we think you're doing something really interesting. We'd like to talk to you about it further. So can you come to New York? And that was like, whoa. And um, we had to sneak into the lauder offices on a Saturday. Um you know, like very surreptitiously without anybody seeing us and um, 
have like these secret meetings. That was quite cool. And from the time of the phone call to the sale being official, how much time passed? Um, About three to four months. Wow, that's fast. It was really, really fast. So it's so, it must have been so almost jarring to like start it and you're still in the rush of starting it and the like energy of starting it and then you pass it off. It was really frustrating. Yeah, it was, it was a really, really hard um, transition for me because I felt like there was so much more I wanted to do with the business. And I had this vision for the brand that I just only scratched the surface on. And we had so much momentum and it was so exciting. But, you know, I saw what was going on in the market and I knew if we didn't take the opportunity to sell to Lauder, we we would probably would have gone out of business. So it was like, have a great exit too early or probably go out of business. Right. So what was next for you after that high? So um, I transitioned into, you know, an executive role at Lauder. Um, That was hard, you know, leaving corporate and becoming an entrepreneur and then going back into the corporate environment. Um, What was the hardest? It's just, it's really hard to, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're making decisions so quickly every day and, you know, nobody's telling you, you can't do that or we don't do it this way or, you know, you're just following your instinct and your vision. And when you go back into corporate, everything's a lot more methodical. It's slower. There's a lot of people involved in every decision. There's politics, um, FaceTime, you know, all, all those things that I just feel are really counterproductive. And so it was hard to fit back into that, although there's so many amazing things about the company and I got so much out of that experience. But after three years, it was really hard for me to continue in that kind of a structure. I really wanted to do my own thing again. So what came next in your ideas? So, you know, I always am mulling a lot of ideas. And I think, you know, whether it's good or bad, I'm usually really ahead of what's happening. And so, you know, I think in many cases, Gloss is an example. Skin Iceland is an example. I was like too early for my time. Like I started working on Gloss in 1995. And um, and then that's why the business plan was in my drawer because nobody was ready to do it. And it was a similar thing with Skin Iceland. I mean, I started thinking about it um, in 2003. I took a leave of absence from Lauder and I spent a year and a half studying the whole connection between stress and skin and working with experts and looking at research. Um, and, you know, I launched the line in 2005. So it took a while for me to kind of get the whole thing baked. Um, And then even in 2005, I think it took a lot of education. I mean, I saw not only a market opportunity, but I was very, very passionate. It was like my own personal passion, um, stress and wellness. I had had a lot of health issues related to stress. And so I'd become very interested in eating organically and doing yoga and acupuncture and all kinds of alternative therapies. It was one of the reasons I'd moved to California. So it was something I've been doing for a long time, and I wanted to figure out, like, how do I combine this personal passion with what I do professionally? And that was what really drove me. And then, you know, as a marketing person, I looked at the market and what was going on in skincare and beauty, and I saw that there was, like, a real trend towards wellness and lifestyle, and I felt like stress was just an epidemic that was going to get worse and worse. And I thought if I could sort of link stress and what was going on on the inside with what was happening on the outside, that that was like a very powerful um, concept. And that if I could bring that to life with skincare was something that could really create a dialogue. And so for me, it was much more than like creating an eye cream that helps with wrinkles. It was more about like creating this community and this movement and concept. Um, But, you know, the first few years were really hard. I mean, not only was there a recession, but people didn't really get the connection between stress and skin. So so there was a lot of 
education and information that we needed to teach the customer about and get them to make that connection. We're, we're now, you know, we don't educate at all. People just get it. So let's go back in time to this idea of stress. Like, um, what was, how is stress manifesting so much that you were like, oh, let me study this? Because, I mean, don't we all feel stressed? So what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I think we all feel stressed, and it's just a question of degrees. Like, for me, what happened was, you know, I was stressed because I was working really long hours. I was traveling. I wasn't eating right. And sometimes it's that combination of things that just wears down your immune system. So at a certain point, I just, like, I would always, like, push myself and push myself. I would sleep five hours a night, and then I would get on a plane, and finally my body just gave out and said, stop, like, you just, I'm not going to let you go anymore. And I just thought, like, I was sick, but I didn't understand what was happening physiologically. Like, I basically was having, like, this adrenal fatigue moment, and I just had, what happens is, like, your body releases adrenaline to keep you going, And at a certain point, your body runs out of adrenaline and you literally are like scraping the bottom of the gas tank. Um, And so what happened to me at that time, when your immune system breaks down like that, you start catching a lot of weird things that you normally wouldn't get. It's not like you get a cold. Like I got chicken pox in my 30s. So, um, you know, I, I got really, really sick and then I just didn't take care of myself. And then I just kept getting sick on top of that until I ended up in the hospital. Um. And my doctor said to me, like, if you don't learn to manage your stress, you're not going to live to see 40. Oh, my gosh. How old were you at this time? I was 30, like 31, 32. So this is interesting because at, at that time in your life, you probably had friends who were also, like, moving quickly, you know, um, stretched and maxed out. Um, were they having these physical reactions to it the way that you had? Well, you know— it was kind of a weird thing because the company I was working for at the time, I won't say who, but um, a lot of people were having health issues. And it was because we were all working such long hours and traveling so much. And so it was sort of, it was almost like a badge of honor to like get sick because it meant you were actually just giving everything to your job. But that was just so demented. Um, and so there were a lot of really young people getting very sick. And... Um, you know, being in skincare too, of course, like there's a vanity portion of this. So what started happening was like everything going on in the inside was showing on my skin. I had cystic acne and my skin was really dull and I had this like green pallor to my skin and I looked older than I was. And I'll never forget, I went to a dinner once we, I had to go to con for work because there's like a big um, show there every, every summer. And I went to a dinner and and all the women looked like glowing and hydrated and healthy. And I was like, had like pimples on my face and my skin looked terrible. I was like green. I was like, all right, I got to pull it together. I got to do something about this. So that's what really led me to like start to study it and to understand like what is really happening inside that is making me look like this. And um, I felt like it's, I know so many people that are stressed, it can't just be me. Like other people have to be dealing with this too. Um, let's talk a little bit about that demented thinking that you just mentioned around, like, this badge of honor, right? The harder you work, the sicker you get, the more devoted you are, right, to the company, right? right. Um, so this is pretty common, especially, like, when I was growing up in um, the marketing industry. And um, now that I'm an entrepreneur, I get to undo that. Um, 
how are how are you able to sort of undo that for your team? I mean, last night was a perfect example. I had um, a meeting that went kind of late, and I got out of the meeting at 6.25, and I was the last person in my office. And I was actually really excited about that. I was like, oh, my gosh, that I feel so good that I've created an environment where people leave the office at a normal hour and have a life. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's one of the things I do. And the other thing is that I don't, my team doesn't feel stressed out if they have a doctor's appointment and they have to come at work to work at 10, that nobody's judging them because of that. And, and so I feel like there's a lot of freedom in my team to like have a life and do the things that you have to do because I remember that for me was a, a big part of the stress. Like I was always scheduled into meetings that I had no control over and I couldn't control my own schedule. So I would constantly like make a doctor's appointment, have to reschedule it, constantly make plans with friends, cancel. So I think having control over your life and over your schedule is just like a much more positive way to live. Oh, that's so interesting that you talk, You mentioned this idea of not having control over your schedule. I was talking with a team member here who's my age, and um, I had an interaction like that with somebody from the outside. She's like, oh, I don't have control over my schedule. And I turned to Rob, and I'm like, you know, why are we different? And Robin's like, because we, we treat each other like adults. Right? Like, right. I mean, isn't that sort of what it comes down to? Like, right. you're an adult. You, If you need to go to the doctor, then you go to the doctor, and then we'll find another time for the meeting. Right? right? Isn't it, like, about respect? Right. It's like, I mean, I remember in public school, we had to ask to go to the bathroom. It's like, I mean, <laughs> why do I need approval to go to the bathroom? It's the same kind of thing. Like, you know what you have to do. Like, you're in charge of your schedule and your life and your work, and you get it done. And if you don't, then you don't have a job anymore. But... You know, obviously, I, I like to give my team, like, accountability and responsibility. Right. So um, this is very unusual, right? Like, we probably know more people who work in these environments where they have to raise their hand and ask permission or yes. sneak around, yes. right, which is such a bad feeling. It's a horrible feeling. And I think at the end of the day, you get much less out of people, too. Like, my team is so committed and dedicated and loyal to me. And... Like, it's not an easy environment. It's very stressful. You know, the business is hard and challenging. So in order to, I feel, to get that kind of loyalty, it's because I respect people and give them that kind of freedom. I think of the scenes from the TV show The Office where, like, people are, like, racing out at 5 o'clock because <laughs> yes. they don't want Michael to, like, call them, right? So, but that, like, I've lived through jobs like that where you're, like, you put your desk in a certain way so you want people to think you're there, but you're really not right. there. Yes. Um, I actually left a full-time job um, to go out on my own, I guess, 13, 14 years ago. And um, because I didn't think that I could become a mom there. Like, I didn't think that whatever mom meant, I didn't even know I didn't have kids, like, whatever taking care of a baby would require and wanting to re wanting to do it, that I wouldn't be able to do that because I had to, like, you know, privately go to the doctor's office and not just say, like, I'm going to the doctor. I know. It, it just, like, makes me want to cry. But, it, you know, it, it makes me think about, you know, I went to uh, Columbia Business School and I would say, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say probably 80% of the women I graduated with um, – stopped working after in the first five years mm -hmm. because I think the workplace was so unforgiving and a lot of them wanted to have children and didn't feel like they could and still have a career or there was the glass ceiling and there was just only so far they could go and why give up, you know, having a family or spending time with your family to make less than all the men around you and not be able to advance in your career. So it just wasn't worth it. And that to me is like, such a sad statement about what what's going on. 
I think about um, the stress that you just talked about in, through the lens of my own experience. So when I left um, my full-time job to go out on my own, I didn't know it was ahead of me, but it turned out that to get pregnant, I'd have to go through IVF. So, like, that requires, like, doctor's appointments, like, almost mm-hmm. every day for some I time did, I did it, too, so I totally understand. So, I was like, the universe gave me the gift of the courage to walk away from that job so that I could ha- go through this stressful experience with IVF without the added stress of, like, having to beg for time well, exactly. in the morning to go to the doctor, exactly. right? Well, I recently was asked to join um, the um, Tufts Entrepreneurship um, Center Board, which I went, that's where I went undergrad, and... Um, my mission, I've been talking to them about like what my mission is being on the board and my mission is going to be to try to create um, opportunities and sort of support um, for women that want to be entrepreneurs and figuring out how to support women in the workplace so that they are not suffering from these exact kinds of situations. So um, let's undo this, right? Yeah. Like if you're sick and you come to work, it's stupid. It's not awesome. You're right. not you're not helping anybody. Exactly. Exactly. There's no badge of honor to killing yourself in the workplace. It's about like being the best that you can be physically, so mentally you can think and contribute. So how does Iceland tie into stress management? So when I was developing Skin Iceland, I um Ended up just going to Iceland on vacation with my sister. Um, I'd always been interested in it because I imagined it to be a place that was, like, clean and pure. Um, And then I went there, and it actually is exactly that. And I found it just really, really inspiring. And since I was, at the time, working on Skin Iceland and developing it, it kind of brought it all together for me. Like, here I was in New York where things are, like, stressful and busy and dirty. And then I went to Iceland, and it's clean and beautiful and natural. And I thought, and people have beautiful skin. So I thought, well, what's going on here? And so it not only became sort of a marketing integration for me, but it also became a source of a lot of our key ingredients. And we source amazing ingredients, botanicals and medicinal herbs and marine elements that all have these incredible properties. And we incorporate them into all the products. So it really became this Iceland connection for me that has just filtered through the brand since the beginning. So there's you mentioned that you were ahead, right ahead of the industry. And I can think of so many times when you've been ahead, right? Like the eye patches, right? The soothing and cooling eye patches. You've yeah. been doing this for a really, really long time. Yeah, a really long time. We launched, I launched the eye patches in 2006. And, you know, we. <laughs> I was actually talking about this yesterday because I was saying like, we were, for, I mean, I don't know if I could prove it, but I'm pretty sure we were first. And um, I found the technology and I thought it was so cool and interesting and it worked really well. But at the time, the customer wasn't totally ready for it yet. They were like, why do I need this extra step? What does this do? Like, it was hard enough getting people to use an eye cream. So it really, really took a while for people to um, adopt. But now, obviously, it's it's just been a huge um, part of our business. So how do you manage the first two, first of its kind with the fact that you you know, in this digital first marketplace, we really need people to like jump on things quickly to 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 move them forward, right? To yeah. fuel the resources that it requires to move the business forward. So how do you manage the sometimes you're too early with the fact that you also need to sell products, you know, yeah. to, to keep the business going? I mean, the yeah, the hard thing is that, um, you know, also when you're a small company, you don't have the resources, to, you know, like the capital to spend to, to support it. So typically what I would say if you're working for a larger company is even if you're early, you educate the market and then you spend behind it. 
So you have to be super creative and resourceful, which is why, you know, we ended up working with makeup artists because it was really an inexpensive way for us to educate the marketplace. We started um, sending the product to makeup artists, explaining, training them, getting it um, in their toolbox. Um, and through that, having them fall in love with the product, use it on their clients, and then it just was like a snowball effect. So, because when we launched that product too, there wasn't social media. So, you know, now it would be a little bit easier, but even then it was harder. So, um, you know, it was really sort of an underground movement and creating that momentum that then had, you know, the snowball effect that that grew the business and finally got itself to retail. And um, how do you keep up your... Um positive attitude when you are in these moments where like you're you know it's a great idea you know it's the next thing but the world isn't ready for it yet um you know i i i just think it's when you really believe something like nobody can tell you that it's not going to work or it, i mean i can't tell you how many people told me my company was like never going to make it and was going to fail wait people really said that to you so many people said that to me so many people people in our business Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, in what context? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, when I first started the company, I had breakfast with somebody who had started a company in the sector and sold it and said, why would you want to do this? It's so difficult. Like, there's so many people that try this and fail. I mean, the chances of you succeeding are so small. Like, why bother, basically? So that was, you know, kind of depressing. But I just thought, instead of, like, taking it to heart, I mean, I had a few hours where I was like, what the hell? But then I was like, you know what? He just doesn't understand what I'm doing, and he doesn't know who I am, and he doesn't understand my determination. I'm, You know, there's always going to be somebody who's successful in this space. Like, why can't it be me? Mm-hmm. And so that's what, I always, that's what always drove me. Like, there's always going to be somebody who's successful, so why shouldn't it be me? Like, I have a good idea, and I have something that I think is important. I have, like, an important message to get out there. So I think it's just, like, really, really believing in yourself and what you're doing and that even in the darkest hours, like, when we, I went through the recession and I felt like we were going to go out of business and we barely had any um, customers and— but um, I, when I say customers, I mean um, retailers. We, we had very few retailers. But the customer um, kept buying the product. They would do anything to find the product. And we would get emails and phone calls like, where can I find Skin Iceland? I'm out of such and such. I, I tried another product, but it just doesn't work. I, I need my Skin Iceland. And that's when I realized, okay, there's something really amazing about the product. Like, it can't be replaced. People can't switch. Um, it, there's something— um, in this that's going to make it. And that there were little signs like that that just kept me going. I mean, there was one point when I was literally 10 days away from going broke. Like, we were out of money, and I went to um, the Women's Wear Daily um, Beauty Awards luncheon, and we were nominated for the Indie Beauty Award of the Year. And I literally, I almost didn't go because I had just had my daughter, um, and I was on maternity leave, sort of. Um, but I, my um, husband at the time and my mom were like, you have to go. What if you win? I was like, I'm not winning. And literally, I was sitting the night before the luncheon. I was like, I don't know. Like, in 10 days, we're out of money. And I went to the luncheon and we won. And I was just like, okay, I think that's a sign that, like, I need to keep doing this. So there were just a lot of signs along the way. So I would say look for the signs that are telling you to keep going. Okay, so this is amazing. Now I want to hear practically. So you're 
10 or nine days away from going out of business. You win this award. What, how did you manage to take advantage of those nine days so you didn't have to close the door? What, what's the next step when you get this like big win? How do you convert that big win into like sustaining the business? Yeah. I think in that particular instance, there was an investor who was kind of circling around. And I think, you know, I, I said, well, we won this award and we have now have this momentum. And so I think it's those kinds of things also that investors who are nervous about taking a risk want to hear and then feel maybe a little bit more comfortable about committing. That's so awesome. That's so amazing. Well, this is a really good note to end our conversation on, right? Such a positive. Very positive, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today, Sarah. Thank you. It was really fun. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.